in which something that was at one point conscious is rejected or eliminated from consciousness. In his account of the development and modification of his theory of unconscious mental processes he sets out in his 1915 paper The Unconscious, Standard Edition 14, Freud identifies the three perspectives he employs, the dynamic, the economic, and the topographical. The dynamic perspective concerns firstly the constitution of the unconscious by repression and secondly the process of censorship which maintains unwanted, anxiety-inducing thoughts as such. Here Freud is drawing on observations from his earliest clinical work in the treatment of hysteria. In the economic perspective the focus is upon the trajectories of the repressed contents the vicissitudes of sexual impulses as they undergo complex transformations in the process of both symptom formation and normal unconscious thoughts such as dreams and slips of the tongue. These were topics Freud explored in detail in the interpretation of dreams and the psychopathology of everyday life. Whereas both these former perspectives focus on the unconscious as it is about to enter consciousness, the topographical perspective represents a shift in which the systemic properties of the unconscious, its characteristic processes and modes of operation such as condensation and displacement, are placed in the foreground. This first topography presents a model of psychic structure comprising three systems. The system UCS, the unconscious, primary process mentation governed by the pleasure principle characterized by exemption from mutual contradiction, mobility of cathexes, timelessness and replacement of external by psychical reality. The unconscious, 1915, standard edition 14. The system PCS, the preconscious in which the unconscious think presentations of the primary process are bound by the secondary processes of language, word presentations, a prerequisite for their becoming available to consciousness. The system CNS, conscious thought governed by the reality principle. In his later work, notably in the ego and the ID, 1923, a second topography is introduced comprising ID, ego, and superego, which is superimposed on the first without replacing it. In this later formulation of the concept of the unconscious the ID comprises a reservoir of instincts or drives a portion of them being hereditary or innate, a portion repressed or acquired. As such, from the economic perspective, the ID is the prime source of psychical energy and from the dynamic perspective it conflicts with the ego and the superego which, genetically speaking, are diversifications of the ID. Dreams Freud believed the function of dreams is to preserve sleep by representing as fulfilled wishes that would otherwise awaken the dreamer. In Freud's theory dreams are instigated by the daily occurrences and thoughts of everyday life. In what Freud called the dream work, these secondary process thoughts, word presentations, governed by the rules of language and the reality principle, become subject to the primary process of unconscious thought, being presentations, governed by the pleasure principle, wish gratification, and the repressed sexual scenarios of childhood. Because of the disturbing nature of the latter and other repressed thoughts and desires which may have become linked to them, the dream work operates a censorship function, disguising by distortion, displacement, and condensation the repressed thoughts so as to preserve sleep. In the clinical setting Freud encouraged free association to the dream's manifest content, as recounted in the dream narrative, so as to facilitate interpretative work on its latent content, the repressed thoughts and fantasies, and also on the underlying mechanisms and structures operative in the dream work. As Freud developed his theoretical work on dreams he went beyond his theory of dreams as wish fulfillments to arrive at an emphasis on dreams as nothing other than a particular form of thinking. It is the dream work that creates that form, and it alone is the essence of dreaming. Psychosexual Development Freud's theory of psychosexual development proposes that, following on from the initial polymorphous perversity of infantile sexuality, the sexual drives pass through the distinct developmental phases of the oral, the anal, and the phallic. Though these phases then give way to a latency stage of reduced sexual interest and activity, from the age of 5 to puberty, approximately, they leave, to a greater or lesser extent, a perverse and bisexual residue which persists during the formation of adult genital sexuality. Freud argued that neurosis or perversion could be explained in terms of fixation or regression to these phases whereas adult character and cultural creativity could achieve a sublimation of their perverse residue. After Freud's later development of the theory of the Oedipus complex this normative developmental trajectory becomes formulated in terms of the child's renunciation of incestuous desires under the fantasist threat of, or fantasist fact of, in the case of the girl, castration. The dissolution of the Oedipus complex is then achieved when the child's rival rouse identification with the parental figure is transformed into the pacifying identifications of the ego ideal which assume both similarity and difference and acknowledge the separateness and autonomy of the other. 
Freud hoped to prove that his model was universally valid and turned to ancient mythology and contemporary ethnography for comparative material arguing that totemism reflected a ritualized enactment of a tribal Oedipal conflict. ID, ego, and superego. The iceberg metaphor is often used to explain the psyche's parts in relation to one another. Freud proposed that the human psyche could be divided into three parts, ID, ego, and superego. Freud discussed this model in the 1920 essay Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and fully elaborated upon it in The Ego and the ID, 1923, in which he developed it as an alternative to his previous topographic schema, i.e., conscious, unconscious and preconscious. The ID is the completely unconscious, impulsive, childlike portion of the psyche that operates on the pleasure principle and is the source of basic impulses and drives, it seeks immediate pleasure and gratification. Freud acknowledged that his use of the term ID, das es, the it, derives from the writings of George Grodek. The superego is the moral component of the psyche, which takes into account no special circumstances in which the morally right thing may not be right for a given situation. The rational ego attempts to exact a balance between the impractical hedonism of the ID and the equally impractical moralism of the superego, it is the part of the psyche that is usually reflected most directly in a person's actions. When overburdened or threatened by its tasks, it may employ defense mechanisms including denial, repression, undoing, rationalization, and displacement. This concept is usually represented by the iceberg model. This model represents the roles the ID, ego, and superego play in relation to conscious and unconscious thought. Freud compared the relationship between the ego and the ID to that between a charioteer and his horses, the horses provide the energy and drive, while the charioteer provides direction. Life and death drives. Freud believed that the human psyche is subject to two conflicting drives, the life drive or libido and the death drive. The life drive was also termed eros and the death drive then eidos, although Freud did not use the latter term, then eidos was introduced in this context by Paul Federn. Freud hypothesized that libido is a form of mental energy with which processes, structures and object representations are invested. In Beyond the Pleasure Principle, 1920, Freud inferred the existence of a death drive. Its premise was a regulatory principle that has been described as the principle of psychic inertia, the nirvana principle, and the conservatism of instinct. Its background was Freud's earlier project for a scientific psychology, where he had defined the principle governing the mental apparatus as its tendency to divest itself of quantity or to reduce tension to zero. Freud had been obliged to abandon that definition, since it proved adequate only to the most rudimentary kinds of mental functioning, and replaced the idea that the apparatus tends toward a level of zero tension with the idea that it tends toward a minimum level of tension. Freud in effect readopted the original definition in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, this time applying it to a different principle. He asserted that on certain occasions the mind acts as though it could eliminate tension entirely, or in effect to reduce itself to a state of extinction, his key evidence for this was the existence of the compulsion to repeat. Examples of such repetition included the dream life of dramatic neurotics and children's play. In the phenomenon of repetition, Freud saw a psychic trend to work over earlier impressions, to master them and derive pleasure from them, a trend was prior to the pleasure principle but not opposed to it. In addition to that trend, there was also a principle at work that was opposed to, and thus beyond the pleasure principle. If repetition is a necessary element in the binding of energy or adaptation, when carried to inordinate lengths it becomes a means of abandoning adaptations and reinstating earlier or less evolved psychic positions. By combining this idea with the hypothesis that all repetition is a form of discharge, Freud reached the conclusion that the compulsion to repeat is an effort to restore a state that is both historically primitive and marked by the total draining of energy, death. Melancholia In his 1917 essay Morning and Melancholia, Freud drew a distinction between mourning, painful but an inevitable part of life, and melancholia, his term for pathological refusal of a mourner to decathect from the lost one. Freud claimed that, in normal mourning, the ego was responsible for narcissistically detaching the libido from the lost one as a means of self-preservation, but that in melancholia, prior ambivalence towards the lost one prevents this from occurring. Suicide, Freud hypothesized, could result in extreme cases, when unconscious feelings of conflict became directed against the mourner's own ego. Femininity and Female Sexuality Initiating what became the first debate within psychoanalysis on femininity, Karen Horney of the Berlin Institute set out to challenge Freud's account of the development of feminine sexuality. Rejecting Freud's theories of the feminine castration complex and penis envy, 
Horny argued for a primary femininity and penis envy as a defensive formation rather than arising from the fact, or injury, of biological asymmetry as Freud held. Horny had the influential support of Melanie Klein and Ernest Jones who coined the term phallocentrism in his critique of Freud's position. In defending Freud against this critique, feminist scholar Jacqueline Rose has argued that it presupposes a more normative account of female sexual development than that given by Freud. She notes that Freud moved from a description of the little girl stuck with her inferiority or injury in the face of the anatomy of the little boy to an account in his later work which explicitly describes the process of becoming feminine as an injury or catastrophe for the complexity of her earlier psychic and sexual life. According to Freud, elimination of clitoral sexuality is a necessary precondition for the development of femininity, since it is immature and masculine in its nature. Freud postulated the concept of vaginal orgasm as separate from clitoral orgasm, achieved by external stimulation of the clitoris. In 1905, he stated that clitoral orgasms are purely an adolescent phenomenon and that, upon reaching puberty, the proper response of mature women is a changeover to vaginal orgasms, meaning orgasms without any clitoral stimulation. This theory has been criticized on the grounds that Freud provided no evidence for this basic assumption, and because it made many women feel inadequate when they could not achieve orgasm via vaginal intercourse alone. Religion Freud regarded the monotheistic God as an illusion based upon the infantile emotional need for a powerful, supernatural pater familias. He maintained that religion, once necessary to restrain man's violent nature in the early stages of civilization, in modern times, can be set aside in favor of reason and science 172 obsessive actions and religious practices, 1907, notes the likeness between faith, religious belief, and neurotic obsession. Totem and Taboo, 1913, proposes that society and religion begin with the patricide and eating of the powerful paternal figure, who then becomes a revered collective memory 174 these arguments were further developed in the future of an illusion, 1927, in which Freud argued that religious belief serves the function of psychological consolation. Freud argues the belief of a supernatural protector serves as a buffer from man's fear of nature just as the belief in an afterlife serves as a buffer from man's fear of death. The core idea of the work is that all of religious belief can be explained through its function to society, not for its relation to the truth. This is why, according to Freud, religious beliefs are illusions. In Civilization and Its Discontents, 1930, he quotes his friend Romain Roland, who described religion as an oceanic sensation, but says he never experienced this feeling 175 Moses and Monotheism, 1937, proposes that Moses was the tribal pater familias, killed by the Jews, who psychologically coped with the patricide with a reaction formation conducive to their establishing monotheist Judaism 176 analogously, he described the Roman Catholic rite of Holy Communion as cultural evidence of the killing and devouring of the Sacred Father. Moreover, he perceived religion, with its suppression of violence, as mediator of the societal and personal, the public and the private, conflicts between Eros and then Eidos, the forces of life and death. Later works indicate Freud's pessimism about the future of civilization, which he noted in the 1931 edition of Civilization and its Discontents. In a footnote of his 1909 work, Analysis of a Phobia in a Five-Year-Old Boy, Freud theorized that the universal fear of castration was provoked in the uncircumcised when they perceived circumcision and that this was the deepest unconscious root of anti-Semitism. Legacy Freud's legacy, though a highly contested area of controversy, was described by Stephen Frosch as one of the strongest influences on 20th century thought, its impact comparable only to that of Darwinism and Marxism. Henry Ellenberger stated that its range of influence permeated all the fields of culture, so far as to change our way of life and concept of man. Psychotherapy Though not the first methodology in the practice of individual verbal psychotherapy, Freud's psychoanalytic system came to dominate the field from early in the 20th century, forming the basis for many later variants. While these systems have adopted different theories and techniques, all have followed Freud by attempting to achieve psychic and behavioral change through having patients talk about their difficulties. Psychoanalysis is not as influential as it once was in Europe and the United States, though in some parts of the world, notably Latin America, its influence in the later 20th century expanded substantially. Psychoanalysis also remains influential within many contemporary schools of psychotherapy and has led to innovative therapeutic work in schools and with families and groups. There is a substantial body of research which demonstrates the efficacy of the clinical methods of psychoanalysis and of related psychodynamic therapies in treating a wide range of psychological disorders.
The Neo-Freudians, a group including Alfred Adler, Otto Rank, Karen Horney, Harry Stack Sullivan and Eric Fromm, rejected Freud's theory of instinctual drive, emphasized interpersonal relations and self-assertiveness, and made modifications to therapeutic practice that reflected these theoretical shifts. Adler originated the approach, although his influence was indirect due to his inability to systematically formulate his ideas. Neo-Freudian analysis places more emphasis on the patient's relationship with the analyst and less on exploration of the unconscious. Carl Jung believed that the collective unconscious, which reflects the cosmic order and the history of the human species, is the most important part of the mind. It contains archetypes, which are manifested in symbols that appear in dreams, disturbed states of mind, and various products of culture. Jungians are less interested in infantile development and psychological conflict between wishes and the forces that frustrate them than in integration between different parts of the person. The object of Jungian therapy was to mend such splits. Jung focused in particular on problems of middle and later life. His objective was to allow people to experience the split-off aspects of themselves, such as the anima, a man's suppressed female self, the animus, a woman's suppressed male self, or the shadow, an inferior self-image, and thereby attain wisdom. Jacques Lacan approached psychoanalysis through linguistics and literature. Lacan believed Freud's essential work had been done prior to 1905 and concerned the interpretation of dreams, neurotic symptoms, and slips, which had been based on a revolutionary way of understanding language and its relation to experience and subjectivity, and that ego psychology and object relations theory were based upon misreadings of Freud's work. For Lacan, the determinative dimension of human experience is neither the self, as in ego psychology, nor relations with others, as in object relations theory, but language. Lakin saw desire as more important than need and considered it necessarily ungratifiable. Wilhelm Reich developed ideas that Freud had developed at the beginning of his psychoanalytic investigation but then superseded but never finally discarded. These were the concept of the actual neurosis and a theory of anxiety based upon the idea of damned-up libido. In Freud's original view, what really happened to a person, the actual, determined the resulting neurotic disposition. Freud applied that idea both to infants and to adults. In the former case, seductions were sought as the causes of later neuroses and in the latter incomplete sexual release. Unlike Freud, Reich retained the idea that actual experience, especially sexual experience, was of key significance. By the 1920s, Reich had taken Freud's original ideas about sexual release to the point of specifying the orgasm as the criteria of healthy function. Reich was also developing his ideas about character into a form that would later take shape, first as muscular armor, and eventually as a transducer of universal biological energy, the argon dot. Fritz Perls, who helped to develop Gestalt therapy, was influenced by Reich, Jung, and Freud. The key idea of Gestalt therapy is that Freud overlooked the structure of awareness, an active process that moves toward the construction of organized meaningful holes, between an organism and its environment. These holes, called Gestalts, are patterns involving all the layers of organismic function, thought, feeling, and activity. Neurosis is seen as splitting in the formation of Gestalts, and anxiety as the organism sensing the struggle towards its creative unification. Gestalt therapy attempts to cure patients through placing them in contact with immediate organismic needs. Pearls rejected the verbal approach of classical psychoanalysis, talking in Gestalt therapy serves the purpose of self-expression rather than gaining self-knowledge. Gestalt therapy usually takes place in groups, and in concentrated workshops rather than being spread out over a long period of time, it has been extended into new forms of communal living. Arthur Janov's primal therapy, which has been an influential post-Freudian psychotherapy, resembles psychoanalytic therapy in its emphasis on early childhood experience, but has also differences with it. While Janov's theory is akin to Freud's early idea of actual neurosis, he does not have a dynamic psychology but a nature psychology like that of Reich or Pearls, in which need is primary while wish is derivative and dispensable when need is met. Despite its surface similarity to Freud's ideas, Janov's theory lacks a strictly psychological account of the unconscious and belief in infantile sexuality. While for Freud there was a hierarchy of danger situations, for Janov the key event in the child's life is awareness that the parents do not love it. Janov writes in The Primal Scream, 1970, that primal therapy has in some ways returned to Freud's early ideas and techniques. Ellen Bass and Laura Davis, co-authors of The Courage to Heal, 1988, are described as champions of survivorship by Frederick Cruz, who considers Freud the key influence upon them, 
although in his view they are indebted not to classic psychoanalysis but to the pre-psychoanalytic Freud, who supposedly took pity on his hysterical patients, found that they were all harboring memories of early abuse, and cured them by uncutting their repression. Cruz sees Freud as having anticipated the recovered memory movement by emphasizing mechanical cause and effect relations between symptomatology and the premature stimulation of one body zone or another, and with pioneering its technique of thematically matching a patient's symptom with a sexually symmetrical memory. Cruz believes that Freud's confidence in accurate recall of early memories anticipates the theories of recovered memory therapists such as Lenore Tur, which in his view have led to people being wrongfully imprisoned or involved in litigation. Science Research projects designed to test Freud's theories empirically have led to a vast literature on the topic. American psychologists began to attempt to study repression in the experimental laboratory around 1930. In 1934, when the psychologist Saul Rosenzweig sent Freud reprints of his attempts to study repression, Freud responded with a dismissive letter stating that the wealth of reliable observations on which psychoanalytic assertions were based made them independent of experimental verification. Seymour Fisher and Roger P. Greenberg concluded in 1977 that some of Freud's concepts were supported by empirical evidence. Their analysis of research literature supported Freud's concepts of oral and anal personality constellations, his account of the role of edible factors in certain aspects of male personality functioning, his formulations about the relatively greater concern about loss of love in women's as compared to men's personality economy, and his views about the instigating effects of homosexual anxieties on the formation of paranoid delusions. They also found limited and equivocal support for Freud's theories about the development of homosexuality. They found that several of Freud's other theories, including his portrayal of dreams as primarily containers of secret, unconscious wishes, as well as some of his views about the psychodynamics of women, were either not supported or contradicted by research. Reviewing the issues again in 1996, they concluded that much experimental data relevant to Freud's work exists, and supports some of his major ideas and theories. Other viewpoints include those of Hans Eisenk, who writes in Decline and Fall of the Freudian Empire, 1985, that Freud set back the study of psychology and psychiatry by something like 50 years or more, and Malcolm Macmillan, who concludes in Freud Evaluated, 1991, that Freud's method is not capable of yielding objective data about mental processes. Morris Eagle states that it has been demonstrated quite conclusively that because of the epistemologically contaminated status of clinical data derived from the clinical situation, such data have questionable probative value in the testing of psychoanalytic hypotheses. Richard Webster, in Why Freud Was Wrong, 1995, described psychoanalysis as perhaps the most complex and successful pseudoscience in history. Cruz believes that psychoanalysis has no scientific or therapeutic merit. I.B. Cohen regards Freud's interpretation of dreams as a revolutionary work of science, the last such work to be published in book form. In contrast Alan Hobson believes that Freud, by rhetorically discrediting 19th-century investigators of dreams such as Alfred Maury and the Marquis de Hervé de Saint-Denis at a time when study of the physiology of the brain was only beginning, interrupted the development of scientific dream theory for half a century. The dream researcher G. William Domhoff has disputed claims of Freudian dream theory being validated. Karl Popper argued that Freud's psychoanalytic theories were unfalsifiable. The philosopher Karl Popper, who argued that all proper scientific theories must be potentially falsifiable, claimed that Freud's psychoanalytic theories were presented in unfalsifiable form, meaning that no experiment could ever disprove them. The philosopher Adolf Grunbaum argues in The Foundations of Psychoanalysis, 1984, that Popper was mistaken and that many of Freud's theories are empirically testable, a position with which others such as Eisenk agree. The philosopher Roger Scruton, writing in Sexual Desire, 1986, also rejected Popper's arguments, pointing to the theory of repression as an example of a Freudian theory that does have testable consequences. Scruton nevertheless concluded that psychoanalysis is not genuinely scientific, on the grounds that it involves an unacceptable dependence on metaphor. The philosopher Donald Levy agrees with Grunbaum that Freud's theories are falsifiable but disputes Grunbaum's contention that therapeutic success is only the empirical basis on which they stand or fall, arguing that a much wider range of empirical evidence can be adduced if clinical case material is taken into consideration. In a study of psychoanalysis in the United States, Nathan Hale reported on the decline of psychoanalysis in psychiatry during the years 1965 to 1985. The continuation of this trend was noted by Alan Stone, as academic psychology becomes more scientific and psychiatry more biological, psychoanalysis is being brushed aside. Paul Stvansky, 
while noting that psychoanalysis remains influential in the humanities, records the vanishingly small number of psychiatric residents who choose to pursue psychoanalytic training and the non-analytic backgrounds of psychiatric chairpersons at major universities among the evidence he cites for his conclusion that such historical trends attest to the marginalization of psychoanalysis within American psychiatry. Nonetheless Freud was ranked as the third most cited psychologist of the 20th century, according to a review of General Psychology Survey of American Psychologists and Psychology Texts, published in 2002-210 it is also claimed that in moving beyond the orthodoxy of the not-so-distant past, new ideas and new research has led to an intense reawakening of interest in psychoanalysis from neighboring disciplines ranging from the humanities to neuroscience and including the non-analytic therapies. Research in the emerging field of neuropsychoanalysis, founded by neuroscientist and psychoanalyst Mark Soames, has proved controversial with some psychoanalysts criticizing the very concept itself. Soames and his colleagues have argued for neuroscientific findings being broadly consistent with Freudian theories pointing out brain structures relating to Freudian concepts such as libido, drives, the unconscious, and repression. Neuroscientists who have endorsed Freud's work include David Eagleman who believes that Freud transformed psychiatry by providing the first exploration of the way in which hidden states of the brain participate in driving thought and behavior and Nobel laureate Eric Kandel who argues that psychoanalysis still represents the most coherent and intellectually satisfying view of the mind. Philosophy Psychoanalysis has been interpreted as both radical and conservative. By the 1940s, it had come to be seen as conservative by the European and American intellectual community. Critics outside the psychoanalytic movement, whether on the political left or right, saw Freud as a conservative. Fromm had argued that several aspects of psychoanalytic theory served the interests of political reaction in his The Fear of Freedom, 1942, an assessment confirmed by sympathetic writers on the right. In Freud, The Mind of the Moralist, 1959, Philip Reif portrayed Freud as a man who urged men to make the best of an inevitably unhappy fate, and admirable for that reason. In the 1950s, Herbert Marcuse challenged the then-prevailing interpretation of Freud as a conservative in Eros and Civilization, 1955, as did Lionel Trilling in Freud and the Crisis of Our Culture and Norman O. Brown in Life Against Death, 1959. Eros and Civilization helped make the idea that Freud and Karl Marx were addressing similar questions from different perspectives credible to the left. Marcuse criticized neo-Freudian revisionism for discarding seemingly pessimistic theories such as the death instinct, arguing that they could be turned in a utopian direction. Freud's theories also influenced the Frankfurt School and critical theory as a whole. Freud has been compared to Marx by Reich, who saw Freud's importance for psychiatry as parallel to that of Marx for economics, and by Paul Robinson, who sees Freud as a revolutionary whose contributions to 20th century thought are comparable in importance to Marx's contributions to 19th century thought. Fromm calls Freud, Marx, and Einstein the architects of the modern age, but rejects the idea that Marx and Freud were equally significant, arguing that Marx was both far more historically important and a finer thinker. Fromm nevertheless credits Freud with permanently changing the way human nature is understood. Jill Deleuze and Felix Gewateri write in Anti-Oedipus, 1972, that psychoanalysis resembles the Russian Revolution in that it became corrupted almost from the beginning. They believe this began with Freud's development of the theory of the Oedipus complex, which they see as idealist. Jean-Paul Sartre critiques Freud's theory of the unconscious in being and nothingness, 1943, claiming that consciousness is essentially self-conscious. Sartre also attempts to adapt some of Freud's ideas to his own account of human life, and thereby develop an existential psychoanalysis in which causal categories are replaced by teleological categories. Maurice Merleau-Ponty considers Freud to be one of the anticipators of phenomenology, while Theodore W. Adorno considers Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, to be Freud's philosophical opposite, writing that Husserl's polemic against psychologism could have been directed against psychoanalysis. Paul Ricoeur sees Freud as one of the three masters of suspicion, alongside Marx and Nietzsche, for their unmasking the lies and illusions of consciousness. Ricoeur and Jürgen Habermas have helped create a hermeneutic version of Freud, one which claimed him as the most significant progenitor of the shift from an objectifying, empiricist understanding of the human realm to one stressing subjectivity and interpretation. Louis Althusser drew on Freud's concept of overdetermination for his reinterpretation of Marx's capital. Jean-Francois Lyotard developed a theory of the unconscious that reverses Freud's account of the dream work, for Lyotard, 
The unconscious is a force whose intensity is manifest via disfiguration rather than condensation. 231 Jacques Derrida finds Freud to be both a late figure in the history of Western metaphysics and, with Nietzsche and Heidegger, a precursor of his own brand of radicalism. Several scholars see Freud as parallel to Plato, writing that they hold nearly the same theory of dreams and have similar theories of the tripartite structure of the human soul or personality, even if the hierarchy between the parts of the soul is almost reversed. Ernest Gellner argues that Freud's theories are an inversion of Plato's. Whereas Plato saw a hierarchy inherent in the nature of reality, and relied upon it to validate norms, Freud was a naturalist who could not follow such an approach. Both men's theories drew a parallel between the structure of the human mind and that of society, but while Plato wanted to strengthen the superego, which corresponded to the aristocracy, Freud wanted to strengthen the ego, which corresponded to the middle class. Paul Witz compares Freudian psychoanalysis to Thomism, noting St. Thomas's belief in the existence of an unconscious consciousness and his frequent use of the word and concept libido, sometimes in a more specific sense than Freud, but always in a manner in agreement with the Freudian use. Witz suggests that Freud may have been unaware his theory of the unconscious was reminiscent of Aquinas. Literature and Literary Criticism The poem in memory of Sigmund Freud was published by British poet W. H. Auden in his 1940 collection Another Time. Auden describes Freud as having created a whole climate of opinion slash under whom we conduct our different lives. Literary critic Harold Bloom has been influenced by Freud. Camille Paglia has also been influenced by Freud, whom she calls Nietzsche's heir and one of the greatest sexual psychologists in literature, but has rejected the scientific status of his work in her sexual personae, 1990, writing, Freud has no rivals among his successors because they think he wrote science, when in fact he wrote art. Feminism Betty Friedan criticizes Freud's view of women in her 1963 book The Feminine Mystique. The decline in Freud's reputation has been attributed partly to the revival of feminism. Simone de Beauvoir criticizes psychoanalysis from an existentialist standpoint in The Second Sex, 1949, arguing that Freud saw an original superiority in the male that is in reality socially induced. Betty Friedan criticizes Freud and what she considered his Victorian view of women in The Feminine Mystique, 1963. Freud's concept of penis envy was attacked by Kate Millett, who in Sexual Politics, 1970, accused him of confusion and oversights. Naomi Weisstein writes that Freud and his followers erroneously thought his years of intensive clinical experience added up to scientific rigor. Freud is also criticized by Shulamith Firestone and Eva Figgs. In The Dialectic of Sex, 1970, Firestone argues that Freud was a poet who produced metaphors rather than literal truths, in her view, Freud like feminists, recognized that sexuality was the crucial problem of modern life, but ignored the social context and failed to question society itself. Firestone interprets Freud's metaphors in terms of the facts of power within the family. Figs tries in Patriarchal Attitudes, 1970, to place Freud within a history of ideas. Juliet Mitchell defends Freud against his feminist critics in Psychoanalysis and Feminism, 1974, accusing them of misreading him and misunderstanding the implications of psychoanalytic theory for feminism. Mitchell helped introduce English-speaking feminists to Lakin. Mitchell is criticized by Jane Gallup in The Daughter's Seduction, 1982. Gallup compliments Mitchell for her criticism of feminist discussions of Freud, but finds her treatment of Lacanian theory lacking. Some French feminists, among them Julia Kristeva and Luce Iragare, have been influenced by Freud as interpreted by Lakin. Ira Gray has produced a theoretical challenge to Freud and Lakin, using their theories against them to put forward a psychoanalytic explanation for theoretical bias. Ira Gray, who claims that the cultural unconscious only recognizes the male sex, describes how this affects accounts of the psychology of women. Psychologist Carol Gilligan writes that the penchant of developmental theorists to project a masculine image, and one that appears frightening to women, goes back at least to Freud. She sees Freud's criticism of women's sense of justice reappearing in the work of Jean Piaget and Lawrence Kohlberg. Gilligan notes that Nancy Kodoro, in contrast to Freud, attributes sexual difference not to anatomy but to the fact that male and female children have different early social environments. Kodoro, writing against the masculine bias of psychoanalysis, replaces Freud's negative and derivative description of female psychology with a positive and direct account of her own. Toril Moy has developed a feminist perspective on psychoanalysis proposing that it is a discourse that attempts to understand the psychic consequences of three universal traumas, the fact that there are others, the fact of sexual difference, and the fact of death. 
she replaces Freud's term of castration with Stanley Cavell's concept of victimization which is a more universal term that applies equally to both sexes. Moy regards this concept of human finitude as a suitable replacement for both castration and sexual difference as the traumatic discovery of our separate, sexed, mortal existence and how both men and women come to terms with it. Man, look at here, what y'all say? Ain't that an interesting fella there? Man, this fella here was something else over the course of his life. This guy did so much. And you know what I also noticed in the Germans? Them Germans are some very intelligent folks. Very intelligent, them Germans were. You know, it kind of made me this, and I used to think sometimes, did the Germans actually tap into another dimension? Or did some aliens come down here and taught the Germans, you know, a lot of things they knew? Because they was way ahead on a lot of things. You know, a lot of things. Them Germans, they, they was putting stuff together. And it was almost like someone to stop them from taking over this world because they had their stuff together. And they was just too smart and they was too ahead of the curve on everything they was doing. Sigmund Freud, the way he got into the human psyche, the human mind, it just fascinated me, man. It fascinated me. And I'm not going to spoil everything that y'all just learned, that we just learned together. Because I want, I'm going to go back over, I'm going to go back over this thing a few times and listen to this thing on Sigmund Freud. Because like I say, on the next episode, we're going we gonna to take a look at three of my favorite groups. Three of my favorite characters, which is Edward Bernay, Ivan Lee, and another gentleman I'm going to bring. I'm going to tell you all about a little later. But how all these guys study Sigmund Freud and how some of the things that Sig Sigmund, Sigmund Freud, how, what he put in place, is still in place today. The guy was just a brilliant guy. Just a brilliant guy. So I, like I say, I ain't got too much to say about it because I can't say too much about it because I didn't, we, we pretty much together listen to this old man life. His whole body of work from the time that he was born to the time he died. His body of work. And some people call him, you know, uh, eccentric, uh, peculiar, uh, weird, crazy, all this kind of stuff. Like that. But to me, it's just pure brilliance. You know, it's brilliance. Some, I guess they say what they say. Some people are uh, uh, a, uh, a crazy person is you know like a genius a genius is actually a crazy person something like that what do people say i don't know y'all know i got louisiana education but it just fascinates me when i sit back and i study people like sigmund freud and some of the some of the uh some of the influencers that came after sigmund floyd who actually learned you know tapped into sigmund freud and how they use these things to sway the public how to squat to use these things to sway the masses it's just incredible when you get down to the human psyche and learn about this thing, when you look into the human psyche and learn about yourself, some of the tendencies that we do, that we repeat patterns over and over again. I know for myself, you know, I can repeat the same pattern over and over again and consciously knowing that I'm doing it, but I still do it again. Am I, am I doing that out of habit? I mean, is that something that's coded in my DNA? Is that something subconsciously that's passed on from my parents on to me? I mean, there's a lot of things that we do. We don't understand why we do it, but Sig, but Sigmund Freud, he was looking in these, he was looking to these things. Why we do some of the things that we do? You know, is it hereditary? Is it genes? You know, is it is 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 it is, is it pattermatic? You know, get into a pattern. You know, is it because we want to stay in a comfort zone? Is we scared to get out of our comfort zone? That's like myself. You know, I'm not. I'm the type of person is that I would have my mind fixated on something, but if you come with me with some new information, I'll change my mind quick. Especially when I look at the information and, and I see that the information is right and what I thought about was wrong. I have no problem with that. But a lot of times I know for myself I can get into the same habit of doing some same things over and over again and get into the same trouble over and over again by doing the same thing over again. And I'd be constantly aware of it and telling myself I'm not going to do those things, but then I end up doing it. So I wonder where is that coming from? But then when I look back, when I look back at the whole body of our lives, I mean, a lot of things, you know, we were coded with at a young age. I think the Catholic Church has said one time, you know, if, if you know, if, if you give me a little boy, you know, I'm going to just say for six, seven years old, he's going to be a Catholic. He's going to be a Catholic, a Catholic for life because you can take a little child and you can code them. You can train them, you know, you can train them in the way you want them to grow. And they'll stay in that way. You know, it kind of reminds me of this thing I heard one time about in, in India. They said in India, how do you train? How do we, how do Indian, Indians train elephants, right? 
you know, you have these big old elephant thousands of pounds and how these elephants won't run away. And an elephant is a very intelligent animal. Just like we intelligent animals. Uh, elephant is a very intelligent animal. So what they say, what they do to these these elephants when they get them, when they're a real little baby, they take the elephants and they put a big old chain around their leg and they and they chain them to a post. And that elephant going to piss and he's going to shit in that same spot. He gonna grow up in that same spot. He gonna eat in that spot. He gonna piss in that spot. He gonna shit in that spot. They take him in, walk him, and they bring him back to that spot and put that chain on him. As that elephant grow and get old and get bigger and bigger, they take that chain off of him. And guess what the elephant don't do? That elephant don't leave that spot. That elephant stay in that same spot. He eating that spot. He shitting that. He shitting that spot. And he and he pissing that spot. As a grown elephant, as intelligent they are, because. That's what that's where he was raised at. They take him as a grown elephant. They teach him how to fight in wars and all that kind of stuff. Plow fields, whatever them little Indian people do or whatever them elephants. But then they bring him right back to that spot and don't put chain around their their ankle. And them elephants don't run away. And they stay in that same spot. And that's kind of like how we is, ain't we? When we young, we get coded. You know, our minds get coded with things. And, and subconsciously, we find ourselves doing them same things over and over again. Whether something as a child we saw somebody do or something that was done to us, we stay in that same pattern inside our mind. And then we go and we hook up with somebody else. We go hook up with somebody else who got problems too. So now you got two people with problems that haven't been resolved who don't even know they got problems that need resolved. They, 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 they both opposite folks. But still, but still had stigmas from when they was growing up that 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 that, that they don't know what's going on. That's how a lot of marriages feel. You got two different people who do two different backgrounds, two different experiences, and they haven't dealt with those things, or not, or maybe not even consciously aware of those things, and they both trying to get each other to, to fit into each other bag. I'm trying to get you to accept me for who I am and you trying to get me to accept you who you are and we both messed up and we don't know why we messed up but we're supposed to have a successful marriage and then we bring kids in the world you see you see, you see what I'm saying and this is how this is how people are you know that's how people are you know when you meet people you, you don't know you don't know somebody's background all that you know is when you meet somebody like Sigmund Freud you know you 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 you're looking at the outside you're looking at the physical Right, you're not trying to get to know what's in that person's head, and the stuff to do, and, and what are what you are trying to get to know what's inside that person's head is very minimal. You're not going in depth inside that person's head, or a lot of times if you meet the person's family, you know you get a pretty good idea about the family, you know or how a person is, how they grew up, how they was coded, and that's same for you. So you grew up a certain way. <coughs> Excuse me, for 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 instance. You know, you you grew up and you had a bad childhood per se, and then you meet this or you you get grown and you, you may become successful. You may turn you you may you, you you may have came out of a bad situation when you was growing up with nothing, and and made something in your life and became successful in life. But mentally, you still have those baggage when you was a, when 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 you was a little polar fella, ain't had nothing struggling and getting abused. But now you now you successful and all this successful stuff covers up a whole lot of garbage. You see what I'm saying? Covers up a whole lot of baggage. You know, when you grow up and you become successful, when you get a nice car, you get a nice house, that covers up a whole lot of stuff that's going on inside your head that's negative. That you have side that you have suppressed because you're successful. Then you go alone and you meet this gal, right? You meet this gal, and this gal, she look good on the outside. But see, what you don't know is she had a bad experience when she was growing up. But see, y'all didn't talk about that because now y'all both grown and y'all think that y'all got the world licked and y'all understand things. But subconsciously, those things are there. Now you get married to her, and like I say, in her past, she didn't had abuses and everything like that. But now she didn't came out of it. She probably was adopted or something, or her probably her probably, probably her, her uncle or somebody tried to you know try to tinkle tinkle with her. You know how them old dirty old uncles is. But she now she grown and now y'all hook up. Now how y'all how y'all expect to have a successful marriage when you you know you got things you ain't deal with because you know what you got sex with now so you don't have to worry about them things but subconsciously they're dead. And a lot of times what happened to us is stressful situations bring out those bad experiences in our life. 
So now she got stuff. She she's so pretty. She ain't dealt with. But now y'all hooked up. Y'all get married. Then y'all bring kids in the world. Then you bring kids in the world. Then after a few years, you find out that hey, I don't really. I'm not in the hood. I'm not into him. But now we got this kid. We gonna stay together for these kids. But see, stress in the marriage brings out the negativity in things. But see, subconsciously, we that's right. That's why I tell people when you get married, you you got baggage and she got baggage. Y'all need to unload y'all baggage before y'all get married and see if, if these, this is what y'all want to deal with in the long run. You see, the sex in the marriage only lasts about two years. Two After two years, hey, it's, it's just regular then. Now you have to deal with the real person. A lot of times people, when people get married, but sex, the first two years, they have sex, they enjoy each other, then they have a baby. After when the baby comes, then, then you find out why he's cheating or she's cheating and why y'all lose interest in each other because now it's all about the baby. But see, it's things that in y'all childhood y'all ain't dealt with. And unless you get with somebody and y'all really open up to each other and y'all get in depth about the baggage that y'all carrying as a grown person, no matter how successful y'all may be, no matter what kind of Mercedes-Benz y'all driving, what kind of fancy clothes you got on, you still got things that you haven't dealt with. And when stress and negativity come, that's when the worst those things come out of y'all. So Floyd, so Sigmund, Sigmund, so Sigmund Freud, he was on to something here. He was on to something here. Because we have to learn how to look at ourselves in the past and deal with that past. We just can't brush it off because things are shiny. Shiny things try to cover up a whole lot of dirt. Well, on these shiny things is dirt. Our minds are so powerful, but our minds holds on to a lot of things. They, they call it compartmentalized, compartmentalization. We compartmentalize things inside our mind. And you know what brings things out of compartmentalization? What brings it out is negativity, stress. Stress brings stress brings out all that stuff. Uh, now I'm not now I'm not now I'm not saying I'm saying I got I, I got Louisiana education. I'm not saying I'm Sigmund Freud or anything like that, it, but it just fascinates me, not people's mind, but my mind. Because in myself, you know, I'm like a passive observer, even on my own self. I was recently in a situation uh, with a young lady, and I'm on the outside looking at myself, telling myself not to do something, but I'm physically still doing it, knowing that there's no end game to it. I'm looking at myself, watching myself do things for this gal. And knowing that I don't want her, we're not going to be together. Why am I doing this? Because that's some, and it was a pattern that all my life that I had been doing, trying to help people. And I watched myself doing it, battling with myself. Why are you doing this? But I was still doing it. See, it was a lesson, and, and it was a good lesson because the lesson that I recently learned was, now I'm ready. That lesson taught me that now I'm ready because I thought I was ready, but going through the situation with that little, with that gal watching myself doing things that I know, telling myself that, are you crazy? Why are you doing that? You know that you don't want this person. You know that you, 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 there's no end game. But you still doing it. I'm the one lost. I gave up my resources. I'm the one lost. But I didn't lose in a sense because I told myself that this is the lesson I need to learn to really focus and do what I need to do. Because I was doing the same thing over and over and over over, over again. Even as an older man thinking that I got stuff together. But I ain't got stuff together. I got, I'm getting stuff together now because the lesson was a painful lesson. And not emotionally painful, financially painful. Because emotionally, I got the heck away from it. It was almost like I had a spell on me. But I didn't have a spell on me. The spell that I had on me was the spell that, of the pattern that I had been carrying with me for all these years and years. And finally, and after these situations that I, that I came out of, I told myself, okay, I'm not doing that no more. Okay, I see. But then I did it this last time. But the last time, this last time I did it, it financially hurt me more than anything. And that what taught me a lesson. See, sometimes you got to get spanked real hard. See, the other times when I went through the thing, I wasn't affected in any kind of way. But this last time affected me financially.
And the only thing I can do is laugh at myself because this is the lesson that I needed for me to move forward. So a lot of times, like I say, you have to, I, people say you, you got to deal with your past. I say you have to be consciously aware with you, of what you're doing and be consciously aware to be honest with yourself and don't be afraid to say no to anybody. Don't, don't be afraid to stop doing what you're doing that ain't healthy for you. Because life is all about you. Life isn't all about the other person. Because when they lay you in a casket, they're going to lay you in a casket. And they're going to lay them in their own casket. Life is about you. Now, if somebody want to come along on your journey with you, that's fine. If you want to go on the journey with somebody else, that's fine too. But you have to learn how to accept things. And inside our mind, we can't accept things. I was listening to this boy on this podcast the other day. He was talking about when he was out in the streets doing all them drug sellings and all that kind of stuff like that. He was living high on the hog. He had gals. He had everything. And he said when the police, FBI, whatever, knocked on his door, can we get him? He said he didn't, you know, he, he, he said he didn't quiver. He didn't complain. He said he just put his hand together and they, and they, they take, take him to jail. And he said when the judge gave him 25 years, he said he didn't cry. He said because I knew, he said when the police knocked down my door, he said I had made peace with myself right then and there. That this is the level of the game. See, the game is beautiful when you're making money, you got gals, you got nice cars. Life is beautiful. But when them boys come and knock your door down, that's the reality. So he said he had made peace with himself. See, in his mind, he made peace with himself that, you know, there's only two places you're going to go when you're doing what I'm doing. You're going to go to jail, you're going to go to the graveyard. And this is what I haven't experienced going to this jail thing. So he said he made peace with himself. He constantly made peace with himself. And he said that was it. He said he did his 25 years and he came on home. He said, even in that, he never, he never was mad at the police or judge because they were doing their job. He was out there doing wrong, and he knew that this is where he could end up. If he, if, 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 if he didn't end up leaving his world, he would end up in jail, and he had accepted it. And I think a lot of times with ourselves, we have to be consciously aware of what we're doing and accept the mistakes that we've made, accept who we are, and be consciously aware of what we're doing and not to do those things. You can't fight against yourself. Like I used to fight against myself, you can't fight against yourself. You got to accept it, be aware of it, and you got to keep, keep, keep it, keep moving forward. Now, I ain't no psycho. I ain't, I ain't like Sigma Floyd. That, that just like my personal opinion. Just a little insights from me, whether it's right or wrong. Just a little insights from me. So I'm going to go in this thing because I know I've been keeping y'all a little too long on this thing here because I want, I want to get into my next little pod talk because I, 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 the best, I, the next pod talk gonna be all right there because I love the way. How the media and how people spend things. Like you like you look at one, you know why I'm gonna get off into it. I'm about to get off the next pod talk now. I ain't gonna do it. But look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end this one on Sigmund Freud. Y'all go back and y'all take a look, listen to this thing again on Sigmund Freud. Listen to it a couple times. And then see how it see how it relates in your life, your experiences, how you think, how you think other people think. Sigma Floyd was a very fascinating person, very fascinating. So look here, like I tell y'all, y'all y'all shop y'all shop at your local cigar spot. If you go to your cigar spot, you ask for one of them eight 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 illusion, and y'all get y'all one of them good six sit down there, fired up, and talk to some people around at your little cigar spot. Always support your local cigar spot. Get your little cigars online at JR Holtz or, or Corona, whatever like that. CR International. Get your little smokes there, but. Get out in public and go relax. I know they're talking about now this little coronavirus thing. Man, look, get go go relax. Go find your little cigar space, little cigar lounge. Buy you a little cigar there. Sit there, smoke it, and relax. Support your local cigar spot. All right? Like I tell y'all all the time when I leave y'all, in life, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, take care of y'all selves first. All right now.